This is On The Grid, powered by theracetalk.com on mypodcasthouse.com. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of On The Grid here on mypodcasthouse.com or on the Radio Show Limited's RS1. Thank you so much for joining us for another week of motorsport action. This week I'll have a chat to Mark Walker and Richard Quayle about what was the Grand Prix at Spa and the resultant fallout from all that. We'll also hear from Richard who will give us a story on the history of Malala celebrated its 60th anniversary last weekend. Look forward to hearing that and uh, some key interviews as well with Krause in regards to that. But first of all, let's get straight in to the news. And after months of speculation, Brock Feeney has finally been announced as Jamie Wincup's replacement for the 2020 season with Triple Eight. The 18-year-old is currently leading the Super 2 Series and is set to make a wildcard entry at the Great Bathurst Race alongside Russell Ingall. Feeney was absolutely thrilled with the opportunity and said it was something he had to hold on to for a while. Yeah, it's been a bit over four weeks for me since I you know, officially found out and it's, it's basically been kept within my family for those four weeks. So even to tell my mates, you know, I haven't really told anyone. I you know, told a few personal sponsors last night, but to let it out to the world today, you know, it's sort of a big relief on my chest and just to let everyone know there's been a lot of people to sort of help me get to this stage. So I'm so excited to you know, let them know what you know, they've been a part of this journey and uh, it still feels very, very surreal standing here today. Feeney saying that there definitely will be expectations about him and how he should next perform year. next year. To be honest, it's very hard for me at the moment to put an expectation on it. Obviously, I haven't gone up against these guys yet. Uh, I'll be racing in the Bathurst 1000 in a wild card at the end of the year, which will be pretty exciting for me to have my first taste against these main game drivers. But biggest thing for me next year is looking for a consistent year and learning as much as I can. Uh, I don't want it to be up and down. I I want to learn as much as I can, get some good results on the board and at the end of the day help the team as much as we can and obviously moving into the new gen, uh, the new car. Feeney saying he knew about the possibility of replacing Wink Up as early as last year. It sort of first came to part about Roland approached us about doing the Super 2 Championship for this in 2021 season. Um, he mentioned to us that Jamie would be retiring uh, this year and it would be his final year and someone needs to replace him. Um, so I knew going into this season if I did a good job that there'd be the opportunity to replace Jamie. Um, and I think the team sort of, you know, had me in their back pocket. If I did do well, I could be able to step up and fill that role. So, uh, yeah, all the stars have aligned for myself this year. And, you know, fortunately enough, I've got some good results on the board. But, uh, yeah, it, it was good knowing at the start of the year, you know, not putting that pressure on myself but that expectation to go out and win uh, could result in this. And it's, yeah, unbelievable to be standing here in front of that car. So while Jamie Wincup will step out of full-time driving and move into a team principal role at Triple Eight, Jamie Wincup says the pressure isn't so much on Feeney, but on the team to provide him with the goods to have a great season. Oh, 100%. If anything, the, the pressure is on us to make sure we provide him the, the best car in pit lane. Uh, but secondly, provide him with, a, with an environment where he can thrive and get the most out of himself. You know, And if we can, we can do that, then I've got no doubt he's going to be able to show the world what he's capable of. Oh, Brock's done everything he can in the last six months to, to earn this position, and he's 100% earned, earned this role. You know, he hasn't he hasn't waited for the opportunity. He hasn't uh, wasn't looking around for somebody to give him something for free. He um, he had his head down, um, worked with his family, and uh, and earned this position. And it's it's uh, it's it's fantastic, you know, to see a. Uh, a young Aussie kid just go out there and give it everything and, and get uh, get the best seat in pit lane. Current team principal Roland Dane says the expectations on Feeney will definitely be high. Yeah, there'll be high expectations, but he'll place high expectations on himself. 
And so, it, you know, if you look back to the parallel I like to draw with Jamie's first year with us in 2006, he, he won uh, in his first weekend at Adelaide with us, but his season was very much up and down. Uh, he finished 10th overall in the championship that year, but he, was, he had some races that were great and some races not so great, and that's part of learning. So Brock, um, Brock knows the cars, knows the team. Um, honestly, I, I wouldn't be taking him on and handing him over to Jamie as the, uh, as the future if I didn't believe he could do the job. In other supercars news, there's more discussion on a potential Bathurst 1000 date change. Doing the rounds this week is a potential move to December. It's understood that Supercars is in discussion with key stakeholders about moving this year's race to the first or second week of December. This comes only weeks after Supercars fought so hard to maintain their early November date after a disagreement with Challenge Bathurst. The latest development comes in the hope that if the race is postponed, then New South Wales could have 70% of the population vaccinated, opening the possibility of fans being able to attend Supercar CEO Sean Seymour is adamant he does not want a repeat of last year's spectator cap, limiting attendance to just 4,000 people. In Formula One news, Max Verstappen has won the shortest Grand Prix in the competition's history. After delays and stoppages, the race eventually got going. However, it only lasted three laps before they eventually decided to suspend the race due to the extreme weather. This makes the Grand Prix well and truly the shortest in history, beating the previous holder, which was the Australian Grand Prix 1991, which only had 14 laps. Verstappen still pleased though to come away with a win and tighten the drivers' championship standings. Uh, you know, you have to take it. Um, the conditions were just very difficult out there. Even worse, of course, for the guys behind me. Even though you know my my visibility wasn't that bad, um, but also then the, the basically you know the conditions just became worse and worse uh, from three o'clock onwards. Um, so maybe we should start the race at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock. That would be a bit better for everyone, I think. And tough on what is so many of your fans here that couldn't get the chance to see you go racing. Yeah, I mean, for them, I think they're the real winners today because they already arrived very early today you know, to see us race and then to stay in these horrible conditions with the weather. Um, yeah, for me, they're definitely the winners. And just finally, in a tight championship fight, every point matters, isn't it? You've closed the gap to Lewis. Yeah, exactly. Um, still a long way to go, of course. Um, close the gap a little bit, but yeah, we'll see in Zandford again you know, how competitive we will be. George Russell claimed his first F1 podium, finishing second. Lewis Hamilton third, as they lined up as they did after qualifying. Frustrating day for Daniel Ricciardo after missing out on a solid opportunity to make his first podium for the year, finishing fourth in qualifying and the race. MotoGP news now, and Fabio Quadrero has won the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. The Frenchman took the lead lap on lap five and never looked back, winning his fifth race of the year. Quadrero was pleased with his comfortable win. And um, no, at the end I was feeling so good because, um, you know, uh, the massive improvement from last year is the front feeling. And, you know, to overtake like where I overtook Paul, I mean, uh, you need to have confidence on, on that corner. And uh, this is why I think I, I build that confidence and um, yeah, so so happy about about my race and uh, I expect some corners to be worse and the corner I was thinking that was going to be bad was was okay so uh, I'm, I'm really happy. Alex Rings came in second, almost three seconds behind and routed out the podium Aleix Espargaro which was a fantastic effort for his team, their first Grand Prix Almado GP podium.
That's the news. Let's get straight into the show. This is On The Grid on mypodcasthouse.com. All right, as we mentioned earlier, Richard Quayle was uh, a part of the 60th anniversary celebrations of Malala last weekend, a fantastic weekend of motor racing at the track. And today he brings us that history in the form of interviews and also a, uh, a look at what has happened at the track in the past. Richard. For a long time, the home of South Australian motorsport, Malala Motorsport Park celebrated its 60th birthday in August, and it's got quite the history. The location currently known as a racetrack actually saw ground broken in 1939, as Australia geared up for the looming conflicts in Europe and the Pacific that would ultimately become World War II. The Australian government looked to regional South Australia as a secure place to create a base that could train the thousands of pilots to be needed by the Royal Australian Air Force for the looming conflict. A flat piece of windy farmland 50 k's north of Adelaide was selected as the location, with RAAF base Malala becoming operational soon thereafter in 1941. As the home of number 6 Service Flight Training School during the war, more than 2,000 pilots were trained and educated at the base throughout the course of the war. Sadly, at least 11 of them lost their lives in training accidents along the way. Post-war, the base was the home of the Care and Maintenance Unit, responsible for the upkeep, storage and even disposal of surplus war materials. RAAF Malala would also play a key support role to the expanding Woomera Rocket Range facility in the state's far north, before being officially closed in 1960 as the RAAF consolidated operations at the Edinburgh base nearer to the city. However, the facility would only be idle for less than a year. Frustrated with a government-enforced ban on road racing in the state and the closure of the short-lived Port Wakefield circuit, South Australia's first permanent racetrack, local racing enthusiasts and competitors were scouting for a new location to race, and Malala's extended taxiways and broad concrete aprons seemed like the ideal location. A group of competitors purchased the facility from the Air Force in 1961, setting out a 3.38-kilometre circuit that, for the most part, followed the established layout of the base's taxiways, access roads and hard stand areas that once housed hangars and fighter planes. After opening, the circuit's second-ever race meeting was the 1961 Australian Grand Prix, the last held in the state prior to the 1985 arrival of Formula One on the Adelaide city streets. The legendary Lex Davison headed Bib Stilwell to win the race, driving a Cooper Climax, with David McKay third. Malala's next major event was to host the 1963 Australian Touring Car Championship, the top series for tin top cars in Australia at the time, contested over a single race each year, rather than the multi-round series it is today. Bob Jane powered his Mark 1 Jag to victory in the 25-lap race ahead of Ern Abbott, with the notable name of Clem Smith, remember that, aboard a Cries the Valiant in third position. Smith would become key to the circuit much later in its future. The track was shortened to its current 2.6-kilometre layout in 1964, and since then, very few changes to the layout have actually been made. After a 10-year period of busy activity, the circuit was closed to motorsport in 1971, following its purchase by promoter and developer Keith Williams. Williams already owned the Surface Paradise circuit in Queensland, and was at the same time building a track at nearby Virginia, not far from Malala. 
A court ordered caveat was placed on the venue, preventing any racing activities, while much of the infrastructure was moved to the new circuit. After laying idle for a while, the intervening period saw the circuit used by local manufacturer Chrysler as a road testing venue, while Adelaide racing car constructor Elfin, a famous brand, also tested extensively at the circuit. The track was sold to new owner Clem Smith in 1977, and after five years of rebuilding and protracted legal wrangling, the circuit was granted a license to race for bikes in 1980 and racing cars in 1982. Following a gradual reintroduction of national-level motorsport, the circuit became South Australia's home of the Australian Touring Car Championship in 1989, and Dick Johnson powered his Shell Sierra to victory. Over a decade, the circuit hosted several memorable moments, including the Aussie racing debut of the iconic Nissan GTR, you'll know it as Godzilla, in 1990. Johnson, Colin Bond, Mark Scaife on three occasions more than any other driver, Glenn Seaton, Craig Lowndes and Greg Murphy all featured as Malala Touring Car winners, while names like Longhurst, Brad Jones, Jeff Brabham and Paul Morris did the same, the popular two-litre super touring events. The circuit was notable for its consistent improvements each year, as income from major events, especially the touring car round, would be reinvested into upgrades to spectator facilities, the circuit itself, safety and surrounding infrastructure. Peter Brock's final South Australian event on his 1997 retirement tour filled the venue to the brim. 30,500 people in attendance record for the track that stands to this day. The following year would see the final touring car round held at the venue won by Russell Ingle. Craig Lowndes won the final touring car race there, as the series now known as Supercars headed to the Adelaide 500 the following year. The Supercars would, however, return for a final fling in 2002 in a unique midweek pre-qualifying session prior to an oversubscribed Adelaide 500 that year. Five and a half thousand people turned up on a Tuesday, proving Malala's popularity. The circuit-hosted round of Supercars Development Series, now Super 2, through 2006 and continued to host rounds of the Australian Drivers' Championship through 2010. The track was a mecca for Australian track racing in the 1990s, remains a popular venue for racing on two wheels and led the national charge in the rise of drifting as a significant component within Australian motorsport. Clem Smith owned the circuit through to his sad passing in 2017, his family electing to place the property on the market when it was acquired by the Peregrine Corporation, who are at the same time in the process of building the Bend Motorsport Park near Tail and Bend. Under new ownership, Malala remains a busy venue, a hub of state-level circuit racing, drifting, practice days and driver training experiences. It really is 60 years young. Recently, I caught up with supercars legend Mark Scaife, who remains the most successful touring car driver at Malala ever, to chat about his memories of Nissans, rivalries, and much more. What was your first memory, I guess, of your first time running at Malala? Was it in a junior category or Formula Holden? Uh, no, the first time I ran there was in the HR31 Nissan Skyline. Uh, we tested over there. It was in the days of open tyre compounds and open tyre usage. So uh, I think we had about 300 tyres that we tested across a two-day period. I did the first test there, and then Jim and I went over and did another test there. So, and I remember because none of us had raced there before, it was a really quirky, you know, little racetrack and difficult place to do a really good lap at. Um, 
for, t- for two reasons. It was a requirement to stop the car for the first hairpin and the second hairpin really, really accurately. And the, and the brake phasing between the first one and the second one was massively different. So to, to actually optimise the braking at those two spots was, was hard. The second thing that was hard was that we used to use the beacon from the pit straight. So essentially the beacon was when you come out of the final corner on our, on our lap, on our team lap, was different to how the timing worked, which is at the start-finish line. So there was a lot of um, what I called in those days, it was a big anomaly where you had a start-finish line so far away from where the pit lane was and yeah. where the normal timing come from. So it was actually quite a strange little place. What was the key to a good lap, especially in the HR31? And we'll come to the GTR in a minute, but what was, what was key to a quick lap at that place? Uh, oh, look, this fundamentally, it, it was a place that you really needed to have uh, all things working. You know, the fast corner off the end of the pit straight was fantastic. The left-hander that ran onto the to the pit straight as a consequence of the big, long left-hander and a really late apex drive traction was important. Uh, coming on to what was a main straight with, with a big kink in it um, was always interesting. And, and it wasn't always that you could even get through there flat. So that right-hander in the back straight was quite a difficult corner. And, and most importantly, it was about braking and, and accuracy with the front of the car. So I, I have really great memories and, and real fond memories of a little racetrack uh, that, that used to take, from a driver perspective, real demand and real accuracy to do it really well. Uh, if memory recalls, Jim was fighting for a championship. So you got the job of debuting the GTR. What was it like to jump into that thing for the first time? And, and was it immediately a game changer? Did it, you immediately jump in that and go, oh, this thing's, this thing's wild? Yeah, look, it was a game changer. We, we'd driven it at uh, Winton to begin with in the first lots of testing, but it arrived as effectively a Nismo, a Nissan Japan racing spec car. And lots of things on it were not very durable. And uh, it, it was a, that's a nice way of saying it. And from a speed perspective for one lap, it wasn't out of control. It wasn't unbelievable in those days. But what was great about it being four-wheel drive is it looked after its tyres so well and its drive traction was extraordinary. So the, the car fit for purpose at a place like Malala was was almost perfect in terms of coming out of slow corners and putting its power down. Uh, 91, you won the Gold Star round and the Touring Car round in the same weekend. It was the only time anyone did that at Malala as a circuit when the, the two series ran concurrently. What were the challenges involved in jumping between the Formula Holden and the Nissan? Yeah, look, I really loved it. I mean, a lot of people talk these days about being in as many cars as possible. You know, you see Van Gisbergen doing some open wheel racing in the off-season I mean, I think in that year, in 1991, I did 114 days in a car. So I was, I was never out of one. And, and the discipline of driving the GTR as a big, heavy taxi versus, you know, a, a really lightweight, you know, proper racing car was, was just worlds apart. But it was one of the great challenges. And uh, to win a touring car championship race and an Australian driver's championship race on the same day was, was just fantastic. Malala struck me and, and still does as a track that it, it's got a little bit of something for every kind of car. So that group A area where the GTRs would fire out of the slow corners really well, but then the Sierras always had great straight line speed. So that 
they were really competitive battles, weren't they, throughout that Group A area and then obviously moving into the five-litre era in 93? Yeah, look, it was. And it was one of those places that I remember in qualifying when we did the debut event for the GTR, we had a drama, like a really serious mechanical problem before the end of qualifying and we hadn't even betted in brakes. And Fred Gibson said to me, he said, mate, don't try that hard. We had a brake failure and we, we basically put complete new front rotors and calipers and pads, et cetera, on the front of the car and I got one lap and the brakes weren't bedded. So um, I qualified on the second row of the grid and, and Fred thought that was fantastic because that was sort of as good as you could do. After that, it was pretty much straight off the start line that when I hit it with four-wheel drive and the thing went, Pum! and straight away, I thought, wow, this thing is going to be pretty testing in terms of being able to come off those slow corners versus the Sierra. And you remember in those days of Sierra, like they had a, a truck-sized turbo on them. It, <laughs> yeah. went from no- it went from nothing to ridiculous power of the day, a lot lighter car than what the, the GDR was. So coming out of the slow corners, I remember getting Longhurst and Brock, et cetera, and able to get past them relatively easy because the drive traction was so superior. I wanted to talk about 93 because that first year of the five-liter formula, the Fords had a, a big advantage in the opening rounds and the stories have been well told about, you know, people complain about parity these days, but it, it's nothing like it was back then. But Malala was the best round for you and for a Holden to that point in the championship. And you and Glenn Seaton had a really good battle, if memory recalls, for, for that. What was it about Malala that, sort of turn things around for Holden that year? Well, if you remember, TWR were the people, the Holden homologation team, and instead of putting a full front floor under the under tray in the air dam at the front of the car, as the Ford teams did, like Glenn Seaton and Dick Johnson, they decided to put a 150 mil perimeter floor in, which had hardly any downforce. So at anywhere that was fast, we were in serious trouble. Um, Malala wasn't so aero-dependent, wasn't a big aero track. And I think our Yokohama tyre worked pretty well there too. There's some great shots of the car standing up on two wheels, coming onto the start-finish straight. And that that battle with Glenn, I mean, I one of the things I love about Cito is that he's very, very fair. And we've we had, through the course of our careers, so many cracking battles, but that was a really good one. I remember it really clearly that uh, there wasn't very much in it. And he was the bloke to beat of the day because, remember, they were testing those cars through uh, the course of the previous years, and uh, they were the, the benchmark team at that point. And obviously you came back a year later in 94, which was a big year for you, and won that round again. So, And that was a pretty key round for the championship point of view from memory in 94 in, in building that point score. Look, it was because uh, not in 94, for the first time since 1980, Peter Brock won the championship for Holden and it took 14 years for us to win a championship for Holden again. So uh, the Malala round was pivotal. Uh, the car was very good there. Um, I think overall, we were able to win six rounds of that season. So Malala was an important factor. And it must have been nice from a, a Gibson point of view as well, because the team had dominated with Nissan and then was forced to make this massive change to go into the Commodores when the rules were changed basically because of the GTR being so dominant and Group A being phased out. So it must have been especially satisfying to to get that one in the bank. 100%. I mean, you think about it. You know, people talk about changing rules and changing cars and, you know, demands. I mean, I can't think of one that's harder than that, that Mm. you can't use one single solitary component from your car that you used before 
that's now been banned. So they've changed the rules completely. I mean, I remember saying to Roger Penske, if you think that parody debates and drama uh, in, is, is part of the modern uh, deal, it's nothing like it was because they effectively banned a car and changed the whole regulations at the end of 1992. <laughs> so for us, we changed from a Nissan factory team to a semi-factory Holden team in really four months. And uh, when mm. we rolled out those mobile cigarette packets with Winfield on them at that point, <laughs> uh, you know, it was, it was a really incredible effort for us to be so competitive so so quickly and and especially it was a customer car Richard you know so mm. the, the the original car we we basically had a HRT engine we had Perkins front uprights we had uh, a Ron Harrop rear axle we had all the things that were basically anybody anybody any privateer could have had the same car that we had of that day yeah incredible so Melilar ran until 98 and then in 99, the Adelaide 500 started. But a couple of years later, there was one of the strangest quirks in Australian touring car racing history where we ran a pre-qualifying session. And it happened at Malalar. It happened on the Tuesday prior to the Adelaide 500. I remember it like it was yesterday being there. And there were five or 6,000 people there on a work day that had skived off work to go and watch. I think it was 15 or 16 touring cars pound around to try and make the Adelaide 500 grid. Just, just take us through the scenario as you remember it leading up to that and, and what was going through your mind when you found out that oh, I'm actually going to have to go to Malala to pre-qualify for an event on a street circuit in the middle of Adelaide down the road? Well, weirdly, Richard, I remember very, very clearly, weirdly, I put my hand up to say I want to pre-qualify because the regulations were such that we had way too many cars. We were oversubscribed. And we had to be able to get to the, I think it was a top eight cars, I think. Mm. And uh, Rick Kelly was coming in under the Holden Young Lions banner. And we, as the Holden factory team, ensured his start. So we said, you take my start from where I started last year or finished last year. You've got a guaranteed ticket to ride. I said to our guys, we'll go and do more testing. And that'll give us a leg up leading into the start of the season and the Adelaide 500. So when we ended up doing that day, I remember, as you said, it was a cracking day, some really good drivers amongst the group. And right at the end, on the last lap, I did a lap that was fastest. And Craig Lowndes was driving for Ford, remember, in those days also mm. for Gibson Motorsport. And uh, when he finished, he finished second. So we were both guaranteed a start, but it was pretty stressful and a, and a really active session to get us through the pre-qualifying sequence it was pretty remarkable because yourself craig larry perkins was there as well he gave the two guaranteed entries to perkins engineering to to his full-time drivers he just signed Stephen richard so it was a superstar field every bit as deep as the touring car rounds there in the early 90s these guns going out there on a, a tuesday it was quite remarkable um just just final thoughts on malala mate and it, it's been a significant place for south australian motor racing and it's had a, a lot of history behind it from being a, an RAAF base in World War II early days and it was resurrected by the late great Clem Smith and it, it was such a focal point before Adelaide and it, it probably proved that there was a market I suppose in SA for the Adelaide 500 to kick on and after that the bend and things like that so from an SA point of view would you agree it's been a very important part to the sport in this part of the world? Uh, look certainly I, I think Sincere gratitude to Clem Smith and the team that used to, you know, run and look after Malala. We were over there a lot. We did a huge amount of testing. Um, we loved going there. We were able 
to get our brain around what made the cars work well at that particular place. It was a difficult driving assignment to do a really good lap at the place. And it was a really high level of commitment required to, to get the best from yourself in the car. So I have really you know, outstanding memories of participating at Malalar and and for those people from Adelaide who used to come out in their droves, I mean, I remember those those days where all of that pit straight and all of that uh, area through turn one and through the back of the pit area across the start finish line, et cetera, was just chockers with people. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, a place that you could see pretty much the whole racetrack from certain uh, points of the circuit. And we had some really, really good races at that uh, at that venue. So, no, I, I, I love it. I've got great memories. That was Australian Motorsport Hall of Famer Mark Scaife, the most successful touring car driver at Malala. Some sensational memories from his career, testing, racing and battling at that little racetrack. Well, at the 60th anniversary event held on the last weekend of August, I was fortunate enough to catch up with two drivers who played a role in Malala's more recent past. In fact, as young rising stars of the sport, they both won championships at the venue that would be significant to their future racing careers. Dean Canto and Simon Wills are prominent figures in the sport then, as they are now. And it was great to have a chat with them at a luncheon for a selected group of guests there to celebrate the circuit's 60th anniversary. Apologies for the audio, this was recorded in an echoey room off a PA system and there was racing cars in the background, but both offer great insights into what hustling a supercar or a Formula Holden was like around this fantastic little venue. Uh, our next guest, the fastest bald man in Australian motorsport, uh, who as a very, very young man came here in the year 2000 and won the first ever supercars development series. It's uh, Super 2 now, back then it was the Konica series, uh, V8 Lights in its original season. His name is Dean Canto and he's a parochial South Australian. Give him a welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Supercars departed to the street circuit in 99, but the second tier series came here in 2000 and was a staple of this venue and the very first championship was won by you in the year 2000 in that blue and silver AL Falcon and you clinched it here on home turf. So that must have been pretty special as a young bloke. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, my first experience at Mala was uh, 98 uh, in a Subaru WRX. So when I was 17 years old, which wasn't that long ago. Um, but um, I've always had uh, good success and fond memories here. You know, obviously, 2000, winning the, the Konica Championship. Um, I think some of my rubber's still in the main straight <laughs> and, uh, in the burnout pad because I did my first ever burnout after winning the championship uh, on the, in that area there. But um, yeah, it's, it's a great driver's track, great racetrack. Um, obviously, I didn't have the, the relationship with Clem uh, as our previous speakers, but um, you know, to, to thank him for, for what's here for us to, to use as a, as a racetrack. Um, it's probably more of a grassroots venue these days, but it's still standing, and uh, you know, it's, it's a great challenging circuit. And as and I can attest to this, but as a South Australian coming up through the ranks, be it in the media or the driver or whatever it might be, it was important to have this place here, wasn't it, and be so active when this was the only place in town for most of the weeks of the year outside of the Adelaide 500 where we could go racing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's still a, a circuit where people love to come and drive, whether it's track days or drifting, um, drive a training circuit. Uh, obviously, we've got a world-class facility in the bend, but Malalari is still, as a, as a driver, you know, when you put the helmet on, doesn't matter what's outside the circuit, for us, is still something great to drive on and, and provides great racing. And, and, you know, as you're learning as a driver, having those skills 
to go and drive somewhere else are very important. So this track lends itself to that and, and teaches you those skills where you might get another circuit. What was it like in a touring car? Um, you had to hang on. It's <laughs> uh, obviously supercars, uh, are big cars. Obviously, why they didn't come back here in the end, they were just getting quicker and quicker. But um, yeah, it was when you did the lap time and you were you know, on the front row or something like that, you know you've done a good job. Um, through the kink, obviously, if, uh, if your car was good, you could rest one arm up on the window like Brocky or Lounsey, but um, most of the time you were hanging on for dear life and then come down to the head in there and you know, come down to almost a complete stop. But um, it was always a great racetrack. You, you had to be on everything. You had to be 100% accurate. And um, yeah, like I said, 2000, uh, clinched the title here then in 2005. Um, again, I was in the development series. I was behind the eight ball um, due to an earlier accident in the year. But, um, Two of my closest competitors ended up spinning off and uh, I grabbed back the lead that year as well. So it was very kind to be in the circuit. Uh, do you have a favourite corner, favourite section? Was there anything that stood out that you got particular satisfaction out of? Oh, look, turn one is obviously, um, it's, it's got character. Uh, the bumps as you approach it and um, the curb. And, and it, it changed every time you came here because the circuit always moves, the bitumen moves. But yeah, turn one, if you got it wrong, um, there was a big plume of smoke and destroyed a set of tyres, but uh, when you get it right and you get on the brakes at the right point, just have a little bit of an inside front lock, climb the curb in a supercar, which we can do, um, and then land on the other side and it all works out, it's, uh, yeah, it's good fun through there. Bring people up to speed on where you're at now. Uh, supercar co-driving, where's the useless <laughs> rubbish? Uh, where's the co-driver role at? I know the times are tough for co-drivers at the moment in the enduro game. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously did uh, Bathurst 21 times in, in supercars. Um, last year was the first year I didn't do it, so 21 years straight. But um, I'm on the back burner for this year, whether it goes ahead or not. But I'm not too fast, you know. I've got uh, got a young family, and um, you know, racing is still in my blood, and. Uh, I'm at the bend, I was at the bend three days this week coaching and, and teaching some other drivers all the skills I've learned, what to do and what not to do over my career. But, um, you know, if the opportunity comes to drive, yeah, I'll, I'll jump at it if it works out. But um, otherwise, I get to, to drive plenty of different cars and, and lots of flash cars these days. Well, fond memories of 2000. I was in that grandstand, grand, pit grandstand two, watching on as a youngster. Yep. Uh, enjoyed the burnouts, I remember those. They were very, very nice. Um, congratulations, thanks for coming today. Really appreciate it. Dean Canto, ladies and gentlemen. Our final guest uh, is a Kiwi, but don't hold that against him. He's uh, been in Adelaide for a long time now and uh, raced for an Adelaide team, several Adelaide teams, and continues to work in the sport from here very, very significantly. His name is Simon Wills, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Simon is a former Bathurst Lap record holder, double Australian drivers champion back in the Formula Holden days and uh, development series Super 2 champion the year after Dean in 2001. Um, I want to start with your Formula Holden days because that was a great category, fastest racing cars in Australia still to this day. What was it like hustling a Reynard 94D around this place? Yeah, well, the, it was a lot of fun. You know, those cars are just magnificent, but they're bloody fast. And, you know, around this track here, it was a bit of a handful because you know, it's quite bumpy, the kerbs are quite big. The Formula Holdens didn't like mounting up the kerbs and that sort of side of things, so you had to be really pinpoint if you wanted to get a good lap out of it. Uh, but yeah, we did some fantastic times around this track. I actually think from memory I got a 61.7, so it's a pretty rapid sort of car around these, uh, this place. And uh, with Malcolm we did plenty of testing, we had to do tyre development testing for the category and so forth. Um, so yeah, did plenty of laps and it was a, a real big um, eye-opener for me. 
the beauty about this track too is it really lent itself to the Adelaide 500 circuit. Uh, so if you were if you're quick here, you knew you were going to be quick there. So every time we came out and we tested, we made sure we got a good setup here. We'd go to the Adelaide 500 and we'd, we'd be on. So the Malcolm you mentioned is Malcolm Ramsey of Barana, famous South Australian racing institution. Some cool photos getting around of Malcolm around here in the 70s in a, a Repco-powered Elfin. So he had the driving heritage here and then in the Repco, uh, in the Formula Holden era as well was very significant. Um, now, Formula Holden holds the outright lap record here to this day, Paul Stokel. Yep. Rival of yours has got it, but there, there's a story, isn't there? Because what you yeah. missed it by half a hundredth or something? Yeah, well, it was very close. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this track, as you know, with the weather, it comes in and out. And um, every time I got to race here in the Formula Holden, the weather moved in. And um, you know, the first year I raced in the Formula Holden, uh, you know, I, was, I really wanted that record then. But unfortunately, it rained. But I managed to get my first ever win in Formula Holden over someone called Scott Dixon, who's done pretty well these days. So. Yeah, I was pretty happy with that. Then the next time we came a couple of years later, uh, I was going for a championship, so I just sort of sat in behind the guys for the first race. The next race, went for the lap record. It was blowing a gale, and um, the weather was sort of against me again. I'm out by a few hundred, so yeah, a bit devastating. I actually need to shed some weight and get back to another crack. <laughs> for, uh, the Phillip Island outright lap record, which you still hold, is pales into significance to getting one here. Yeah. Um, and then for a, a glorious sort of four-year period, we had Team Dynamic. Yes. which was such an important part of our sport here for a, a short but sparkling amount of time and that started the following year in 2001 when you, you clinched your second gold star when you also won the development series now Super 2 and like Dean you clinched it here. Yes yeah I actually um, I clinched the Formula Holden title here and I got the Super 2 title here so you know this track actually probably means more to me than any other track I've raced around in Europe I've raced New Zealand raced here but um no, it was great to get those. Actually, Dean talking about his burnouts. I remember the first year when I won the Formula Holden title, I saw him do this huge burnout. And I thought, geez, if I won the title, do I have to do that? <laughs> Never done anything like that. But actually, the Formula Holden smoked up pretty good. So, pretty happy about that in the end. I'm surprised Malcolm didn't give you a clip about that because I reckon a Reynard gearbox is more expensive than a Hollinger. Yeah, yeah, I avoided them for a while. Understandable. Now, let, let's fast forward 20 years, because it has been 20 years, by the way. I hate to bring that up since you won those titles. Um, you're involved in Young Drivers. So, uh, Jay Wanzak, who just won a, one of the heat races in the XLs today, you're involved in coaching with him. And you've worked with Asher Johnston, who most people in this room will be familiar with, with his state championship racing. Um, this place great for young drivers, isn't it? I've done the occasional track day and learned heaps about driving just by the really tricky corners at this place. So from a driver-coach perspective, which is your role now, what do you get out of bringing drivers here? Yeah, well, it's a perfect place for coaching here because it's really hard to get your braking right. There's a lot of difference in variance in corners. You can fire over curbs to learn you know, a bit more about things. So, uh, and Plus, it's not a massive lap, so you're not sitting there only getting a few laps in a day. Uh, you can actually sort of punch out a lot of them. So if you're quick here, you're going to be pretty quick in most tracks in Australia. So. Uh, the beauty is, is now you know, I can start passing my experience on to the, some of the younger guys out there and, um, yeah, and even with the young man Asher Johnson, you know, we still do a bit of stuff together and you know, um, I really love being a part of the sport still and being able to put back is um, something I really enjoy. Uh, final one, I asked the same question of the other guys. Did your favourite part of this racetrack or a bit that was particularly satisfying to get a lap out of? Um, I wouldn't really have a favourite part because each vehicle I've driven you know, all has different characteristics. In the supercar, we did a lot of testing like Jason Richards and myself in the Team Dynamic car in the first year. Uh, trying to get just turn five, the hairpin right, was just um, 
under brakes, you're firing in there in the supercar, the thing's still loaded up through the sweeper. Um, it was really tough to get it right, but you nail it, you actually found nearly half a second, and um, I frustrated Jason a lot with that, so <laughs> that was deeply rewarding. Turn one in the Formula Holden, unbelievable. We'd go flat through the corner, we'd just ride the brake a little to keep it uh, nice and sealed so the car stayed flat, and um, the downforce you know, took a hold, and um, yeah, just trying to hook through there flat out was um, real mind-blowing. 200-ish? Plus? I don't know, I was walking, didn't care about that, yeah, I just wanted to fast, yeah. I just wanted to see the lap times, but yeah, it'd be something, somewhere around there. Uh, thanks for coming, really appreciate it. We've, you've got a car on pole and on second uh, for the Ryan Panovich Memorial Race coming up this afternoon, so yeah, we'll let you go. And, yes, yeah, turn one, two and three, be <laughs> careful. Uh, we'll let you go and weave your magic. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Simon Wills. So there you have it, a brief history of one of Australia's unheralded little racetracks that continues to battle on to this day. Malala has a tremendous history. We've covered a lot of it on theracetalk.com. We'd love for you to check it out. Just head to the website, search for Malala in the function, and you'll find a range of different stories on the circuit's history, interviews with drivers that made their mark, and much, much more. Right now, though, it's back to the studio and more of On The Grid. And welcome back. You are On The Grid. Well, Richard, there's many things that I'd like to say to you about going to a racetrack. Say it. It's post-produced. You can beep it out. Well, one word. The first word goes with go, and the third word is yourself, <laughs> yeah. and I'll allow the audience to fill in the, the Sorry. blank. Uh, Sorry. No, fantastic. Good on you, mate. Good on everyone who went along. It's good to be back, isn't it? Yeah, look, it, it was a really nice weekend, Shebex, and um, sold out their allocation of tickets under the, the COVID cap that they're allowed from SA Health, which was a really tremendous response. So, um, yeah. So was, that based on, was that based on the area that – the amount of area that oh, people could... I don't know the maths. It's, okay. Mate, yeah, <laughs> you could fit 20,000 people there and it'd be fine. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't know the maths and I'm not getting involved in that rubbish. But, um, no, well, it, look, it was genuinely a lovely experience, Shebex. And, and that place, um, as you heard in the interviews, is very special. And especially for me personally and my, my career coming up through the ranks. So... Yeah, it was nice to go out there and celebrate 60 years of, of Malala Motorsport Park. Learn some stuff uh, that will pop up on TRT in coming weeks. Um, Malala's mysterious missing meters. Yeah, there was 800 meters that got lopped off the track in 1964. So I think I've got to the bottom of what, what happened there. But um, yeah, really cool weekend and, and fortunate enough. And, and feel free to swear at me again, but I get to do it again. Touch wood. Uh, this weekend at the Ben Classic, which will be really cool. And we've got Craig Lowndes coming down to drive a Formula 1 car, which will be great. Um, whole heap of classics, cars from 1919 to 2019. So literally 100 years of racing cars on track, which I think is pretty cool. Has there been any thought behind the fact that you might like to stream the Ben Classic? Uh, it's been that, uh, yes. Because that, there would be Short people, answer, yes. There'll be a lot of people that want to watch it. Yeah, look, it would have happened already had it not been for Rona. And um, the Ben Classic is an event that would attract people from all around Australia, like the Phillip Island Classic Festival. Um, and obviously more entries you get, there's more budget to spend on cool stuff, but it's relying at the moment on an entirely South Australian-based grid. So it's difficult to invest in an event when you've got a finite cap on 
your income that comes from competitors so and spectators for that matter. So um, it'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah, good. Mark Walker, good day to you. Hello, Tony Shebecki, Richard Crail. Hey, there was things happened this week. Mm. It's a bit to talk about. I like it. There's a little bit to talk about too, and we'll try and cover it off over the next 20 or so minutes. And I suppose the big story of the week, supercar-wise, is the uh, announcement of Brock Feeney. We mentioned it earlier in the news. Heard from Brock Feeney, Roland Dale, and Jamie Winkup about uh, Brock taking over Jamie's position at the team next year. Pretty safe to say it was probably one of the worst-kept secrets around. I think most people (laughs) knew that was going to be the case. They did. Uh, got a Triple Eight's campaign leading up to it was super, though. Mm. They did a really nice yep. job with their socials. And I, I almost felt like part of it was a bit tongue-in-cheek because I, yeah, because it was like, oh, we know, we, we, we you know we're going to announce Brock Feeney, but we're going to do this anyway. Yeah. Um, it was really good, really well done. Um, look, it, it, I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting announcement, isn't it? What, when was the last time such an untested driver jumped straight into the best team in the sport. Was it Craig Lowndes at the Holden Racing Team, 1994 and then 96 full-time? I, I don't know. It, it's got to remember, Brock Feeney has, before this year, and including this year, he's got six development series rounds under his belt, Super 2, mm-hmm. five rounds of Super 3, and some 286s. That's it. Some total racing career and a bunch of Hyundai XL racing, which obviously is the main development category in Australian motorsport now. Um, <laughs> so he is, he is unproven. Yes. He's fast. Yes. He's capable. He's won super two races. You don't do that. If you're a mug, clearly he is a very good racing car driver, but this is an enormous, enormous leap of faith from triple eight. So they've got all the stats. They've got the data. They know how he drives. Clearly they've seen something they like. Big, big call, but uh, what an opportunity for a young bloke to, to drive the best car in Australian motor racing. I, I like it as a fan because it provides so many questions. Mm. What is going to happen? Is he going to thrive under the pressure? And there will be pressure. You're in the best seat with the best team. You've got the kit there to get it done. And if he's got the ability, he will go out there and do it. But there'll be pressure on because they're not going to suffer a, a dud year because they're better than that. They're the best or, team out there. Or will they? Like, will I, I think they're pragmatic enough to go, well, 2022 is probably going to be a write-off. Yeah, you know, it won't be for shame. shame. It won't be for shame. No, but no exactly. Fair. But they've got that in the backup, don't they? They can afford to have a learning year in 88 or Triple Eight or whatever he runs in the knowledge that 97 is probably going to win the thing again. You know, I think I, I like that they've done it because – you know, they've probably taken the Erebus approach this year. No one expected them to do well, but mm. hey, here they are, and they're batting above average. The, the problem is, I don't know, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because I like Brock. Every time I've talked to him, he's been a good chat. You know, there's been yeah. a bit of stuff about, oh, he's got no personality. Well, he hasn't had a chance to make a personality. Yeah, he's great. 18 years old. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the one big connection I can make is to Scott McLaughlin, mm. who came in off just a, a purely V8 run-up, really, wasn't mm. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, had three years in the minor leagues before he came up, started in 2010, you know, missed the first round because he was too young. Yep. Uh, 2010, 2011, 2012. 2012, he didn't win a lot of races, but he won the Super 2 or the Development Series Championship against a really gun 
field. You know, there was Pye, Mostert, Percat, Yildon mm. Wood. Like, it was a great season. That was probably the best season that category's ever had. And Scotty came out on top. He didn't dominate, but he was just consistently on the podium, second, third, most of the rounds. And when you go into GRM like he did in 2013, there's not the pressure. There's no expectation right. there. It's still six race out. He went out there and won it, mm. you know. You're not under the focus, under the gaze the whole time. That's why I don't mind guys like Jack LeBrock going and spending a year or so, a couple of years at Techno to learn the ropes where there's no pressure on. You just go out there and you figure it out without everyone on your back sort of thing, which mm. they're going to be with with Brock at Triple Eight. Well, we know Brock got the position. Who missed it? Is there anyone out there that realistically was going to oh. take the seat otherwise? Well, you, you're probably never going to know, are you? Could, I, I doubt they're going to go, oh, sorry, Earl Bamber, yeah. but we've yeah. decided to go for an 18-year-old instead of a Lamar winner. But Earl was a, not, a, a realistic opportunity? I, 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 you don't know. Yeah. He, okay. he was thrown around, but, I mean, yeah. he's mates with Stephen Grove, so probably going to end up there if anywhere. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Don't know. Um, it, it's been – he's been the only – realistic option that gets thrown out. And, and there are a couple of times when you pause and think and go, well, maybe RD and co have pulled a little joker on the pack here and maybe they've gone and done a deal with someone from overseas. Like mm. the, the wild card in the Xbox car that no one expected to go well. And Ekstrom and Prio could have won the race, probably should have. Um, so there was always that possibility. But yeah, it, it's... It's a big leap of faith, and and that's why I thought that the similarity and you met your Scotty metaphor is a great one, Mark, because you jump into Gary Rogers Motorsport. JRM was a bloody good race team, but mm. no one expected them to win the championship, no. um, or even win races regularly. They were a team that would get a win every now and then. They'd routinely pick up a win every season or so with a good strong performance. They'd be on the front row once or twice, but but never consistently championship contenders. Which you go back the last time something I think this significant happened in such a team with weight of expectation was Craig Lowndes getting signed to run full time at HRT in 1996 alongside Peter Brock. So the similarities are pretty remarkable because HRT, even though they hadn't won much at that point, were the factory holding team. They were one of the best teams in the sport. They were clearly on an upward tra trajectory. They had the highest profile driver in the land as the lead driver. Um, major corporate sponsorship, they were the big dogs and they went and got previously unproven Craig Lowndes who'd done two Bathursts to Sandown 500 and Formula Ford. But but teams didn't have kids back then. You didn't no, go exactly and hire right. kids. Yeah. That but, was the big change with Lowndes. Is that it was but so they haven't been lately though either, really. No. Like I, I think something that could have worked in his favour if they brought in this next-gen car from the start of the season and everyone started with this new set up and mm. we're learning it from scratch. I think they would have really played into his hands. The fact that everyone's going to be racing their current kit probably for the whole season at the rate mm. we're going, mm. um, that'll work against him because even guys like Anton and Will, they've, they'll have a year under their belts with their current kit and they'll be absolutely on, you know, the SVG sort of spec. So he'll be playing catch up a bit there to try and get that experience up. But, mm. you know, I was talking about Scotty. Scotty came into his main game full-time seat uh, with three main game races and 49 development series races under his belt before mm -hmm. he, he stepped up. Brock, as it stands right now, has had 12 development series races, two main game starts and 15 super three races. Mm. It's not much, is it? Nope. 
It's not. It's not a lot. But you, you know, you, but you it goes. It goes back to who do you who do you get if you don't put him in? I mean, it goes back to Shebeck's point. The landscape isn't full of drivers that you yeah. just you'd instantly go go. Yep, yeah, well, you're going to fill in for eighty eight for a season, but we're going to put Brock in in twenty three. Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard. Like he's he's done everything right this year. I mean, mm. last year was tough. He was at at Pro Drive uh, at Tickford. Finished seventh in the championship, been to big time at Bathurst, lost a, a race there, which would have put him up the championship order a bit. But, you know, he stepped up this year. He's won four of the six races. That's all you can do is your best. Mm. But, you know, the competition, Zach Best, Jadon Ojeda, uh, and Matt Charter's fourth in the standings. You know, the Juice has a great personality, doesn't he? But uh, And he'll, he'll no doubt get there one day. But it's not a, a really top-heavy Super 2 field at the moment for him to be granting himself against. Yeah, it? out of all of them, Ojeda is the only one that I'd go, yeah, he could probably do it. And and having watched he and Feeney race head-to-head in Super 3 in 2019, which was a remarkable championship and very, very competitive at its time. But I, again, the, the level is relative to the rest of you guys you're racing. And, and Ojeda was in a, a privately run car with no level one team links i know morris it was paul morris motorsport running feeney but there were there's a huge amount of experience there whereas anderson motorsport don't have those connections and i thought ojada did a really good job and was probably the faster of the two in raw speed mm. on the year and feeney only won one race that's in right that, right at the 15 start season correct um and he just played the accumulator role after that which is how he won the championship whereas ojada won heaps but had the big yo-yo um the yo-yo leaderboard with results over the course of the season. So, yeah, look, it, it's um, it, it's so difficult to judge, and we're not going to know. But next year's going to be rough for him, 100%. And, and look, it would not surprise me in the slightest that if he finishes 14th in the championship, and as a triple eight driver, that's unacceptable. But clearly there's something there that that team has seen Mm. And and they've got, as I said, all the data, all the information. He, they, he's they've backed him into a Bathurst drive. Um, he's done ride days. He's got the Super Two car. Clearly, there's something they've seen that, with all the wealth of information this team's got, and the feedback from Shane, Garth, Jamie, Craig, you know, four of the best drivers we've ever seen. Clearly, they've had enough confidence to go. Do you know what? We're going to make a commitment to this kid, and we believe that he's. Good enough to do the job and full credit to them. But knowing the way Triple Eight operate, they have to be going into this with eyes open. Surely they will sit down at their next board meeting and go, next year is going to be really bloody tough for this kid. And we're going to tear some cars up and we're going to have some bad results, but long term that will pay off. And it's better to crash him in at a high level now than bring him up gradually. And something along the line has caused them to make that decision. So you look at Triple Eight over the years. In 04, they essentially launched it. Roland came in and bought, or Triple Eight was a bit of a consortium, consortium back then, and 03 bought the team. But it was Radisic and Max Wilson, and I actually did the story for AA when that uh, team launched at the Brisbane Motor Show at the start of 2004. So that's, and I remember interviewing Roland at the time, and he wasn't quite as scary then because he hadn't <laughs> had a chance to yeah. become that scary. You know, the next year it was Lowndes and Ellery. Ellery was gone the next year. Jamie came in, but Jamie had experience on the board. He finished bat third at Bathurst the year before. Mm. He, he had a lot of races. He won the Formula Ford Championship. I suppose this is a bit different too for Brock, just coming through purely V8s, not doing that open wheeler route that 
you know, it seems to be a path these days like McLaughlin did. It was purely tin tops. I want to be a supercar driver. Well, no, now he's over racing Indy cars, so I suppose that's weird. Um, <laughs> no yeah, one saw that coming. Though. No, that's <laughs> left field. It's a yeah. different route. But you go forward to 16 when SVG brought, was brought into the fold. It was all, at the time, it was sort of positioned as a bit of a youth movement for Red Bull because it's a youth brand, energy drinks. We'll mm. put the younger driver in the Red Bull car. I mean, that's what was said at the time. Or was it more that Lowndes, they could find the sponsorship for him if they put Correct. him over there in that third car? I think that's probably yeah. really what happened there. But, you know, SVG came to the team with a dozen wins to his belt. He finished second in the championship in 2014. He, he actually proven. won. He was absolutely proven. And he was an A-grade plus driver. Everyone mm. rated him. Mm. They he should have just, gone there with a Bathurst win. Yeah. 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 And he actually won the last race at Sydney Olympic Park the year before. Yes, he did. Before yeah. he rolled in there. So yep. and yeah, all the, it was an absolute certified guy. We should never forget, too, the, uh, the, the controversy surrounding SVG going to Triple Eight at the time and the, the whole Erebus and... Well, no, no, because he went to Techno first. That was, that was Sorry, Techno, techno and then he yeah. went over to... Yep. But then didn't he go to New Zealand... He was given up racing, and then he came. No, that, that was yeah. That was after. Ah, okay, yeah. After okay. Erebus bought SBR, and then he retired right. briefly, and then came back via Techno. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was there somewhere. Yeah. The the other thing too is uh, we look at the rundown now for the Enduros. Garth Tander with SVG. Jamie, one would assume, still will drive with uh, with Brock next year. What happens to Craig Lowndes? Yes. Yep. Good question. Or, or, or Lowndes, is, as far as I'm aware, has got a deal. So, but so Lowndes ahead of Jamie, is, you reckon? Is, is Garth Garth's deal up? But Jamie, like when when they announced Jamie's retirement at the start of the year, they said he would consider doing enduros. But I don't think yeah, okay. he's made a verbal commitment that yes, I'm a hundred percent going to do enduros. He may get to two rounds into next season and go, gee, this team principal stuff, I need to be on the ground. Yeah. He might opt to not run. And and he strikes me as the kind of person that would go, well, fine, that's a pragmatic decision. Get on with life. Yeah, I've yeah. won it plenty of times. And especially in the knowledge that your backup drivers, either Garth Tander or Craig Lowndes. So you have your pick of it's 11 Bathurst victories. So yeah. Yeah, it's not, yeah, they're in such a good position. Um, and, and what a thing that would be for Feeney to have, I mean, any of them as his co-driver going into it. But you'd be mad to break up the Tanner-Van Gisbergen combo, I would have thought. I would have thought so, yeah, exactly, with 100%. I'd imagine they're pretty short-priced to win it this year, whenever that race happens. Um, They'll be be the favourites to go back-to-back. Yeah, interesting decision. We'll wait and see how that pans out in 2022. The other news of the week, obviously, was what was probably one of the most disastrous (laughs) F1 races Ever not run? Well, since Indy... Can I say that? Ever not run? So, well, but no, no, because it well, ran. Well, it didn't win. It, well, did, it did, but it did I know run. it's just... It's ridiculous. It was trophies and world championship points and Nikita But two laps behind a safety car where you can't overtake. Yeah, I, the regulations are broken, clearly. So, uh, but that's what I don't understand. If you're going to do that behind the safety car, I want to just say, we're not going to do that. We're just going to get on qualifying. Because well, you can't but, overtake anyway. So what's use doing it? Well, no, so it shouldn't be a race. Exactly. That's the point everyone's trying to make. But the regulations that the FIA have written. So w- would you all feel better if it was just not a race? If you just, they call yeah. it, it's no race. 100%. It never happened. Don't worry about it. Uh, yeah. or, or, or does everyone demand a Monday morning race? 
Monday no. would have been fantastic if they could have. Oh well, yeah, my I I'm on record as saying I think they should have at least attempted to rerun it. But um no, I I yeah, I, I'm not in favor of them awarding world championship points to that. Hmm. That's fair. At all. Uh, not points. Give them the trophy if you want. Fine. And put an put an asterisk next to Max Verstappen. Won the Belgium Grand Prix, wacko. If you yeah. have to do that, fine. For but no points reasons. are offered because but of... don't give them points for that. Um, it, it, it takes an exceptional moment like this for them to figure out that. Oh, hang on, this rule's buggered. Yeah, like that's what happens with rules. Is yeah, that correct? You know, like what happened at Simmons Plans a few years ago on the Saturday Arvo when mm. you know there it was technically a race, but it was mm. absolute rubbish. So you they. They sat down afterwards and go, well, retrospectively, that was not a race. Mm. The thing that has irked me the most in the last two or three days that I've been thinking about, the last two days since the actual race itself, is that the amount of confusion that was coming across from everybody, from so that- teams to Michael Massey, from commentators to spec to the viewers, from teams to drive, nobody knew, even the Perez thing. Nobody knew what the hell was happening. So that that irks me more than the way it unfolded. Yeah, I totally agree. And then and the unfolding was just the final correct salt in the but, wound. But I th- I think it was a comms issue because in when they started playing the radio communications to Michael in race control, he was telling the teams, like, this is the rule. This is what's going on. So yeah. we've done a formation lap, but the race hasn't officially started. But but I don't think the FIA communicated that at all. Mm. So no one knew. Yeah, and okay. and you had 45 minutes of David Croft trying to oh. read sporting regs live on TV. And it, it was, it's bad and nothing against Crofty, but it, it's not good TV. And, and this is where our sport falls down in so many occasions is yeah. that it's so overly complicated that, it's fine when cars are racing and if you have to talk about stewards and a racing regulation, whatever, that's, that's part of it. It's no different to footy, but when you get into scenarios like this and you've got an audience of 200 million people watching on and David Croft's going, Oh, FIA sporting code 1.5.6.1 says that if the race has done two laps, it's a race, but if it hasn't, it's not. Um, That's, that's terrible that it, they need, there has to be a better way to get that kind of communication out and do it quickly. And I, and I think, and I'm not just going on the whole, we do it better thing, but I feel like in when a supercar race, so you go back to Adelaide 2016, when Percat won, you go back to Gold Coast when the thunderstorm came in and yeah. flooded the joint. I feel like whether, whether the decision's controversial or not, they get communicated relatively quickly to remove that element of anger. what the hell is going on. I don't know if it was yourself, Rich, or other people saying, you know, NASCAR run on Monday, rain out races and all this sort of stuff. But it's you just can't draw comparisons between the two because NASCAR's just such a different beast to Formula One. Mm. Formula One, you've got all that wank that's involved, all the corporate setups, the pits, all that sort of stuff. At a NASCAR race, you roll up there, the truck driver pulls the toolkit out of the back, they pull the car off it into the garage, they're set up for the weekend. Mm. It's such a transportable, easy to move thing. The logistics of it are so simple. There's a truck that turns up with all the golf buggies on it, unloads the golf buggies, come back to Monday morning or whenever the race is finished, pick them up, go again. All the pit trolleys come in a separate truck. It's all just completely transportable. The cars are different week to week. They all fly private jets. So if they get 
stuck somewhere. They just park the checks there and it's completely FIFO. It's so easy to adapt on the run there. And they have to because mm. they keep putting their bloody races late in a Sunday afternoon when thunderstorms happen. Mm. So their races keep getting rained out. They put them on the Monday and no one watches it because mm. everyone's at work. Mm. The problem Can with I... the Formula One is that that's a 7K track. You'd have 600 yeah. officials there. And you're not going to get all them back on a Monday morning. It's great. Oh, just come back, guys. You can't. Yeah. It's a different setup there in Europe. Like within two hours of spa, you can be in six different countries. It's not like, you know, everyone just goes back to work the next day. It's not a, an I easy think, thing to tell I think everyone the, what to do. The point was that it just wasn't even considered. And I, I reckon Formula One is big enough and ugly enough to make it happen if they needed to make it happen. They would have found a way. They would have found a way. It's it's the yeah. most it's the the most watched sport on earth outside the world. Was Cup it a public and- holiday there, or was no, in no, Belgium, or was no. it England? England. No, I'm talking England. about. Okay, cool. No, the yeah. Poms were talking about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But because um, Brundle was talking about, he's got his flexi. Yeah. Flexi channel ticket for his bike because he always rides <laughs> yes. to the event. But um, they asked um, Karun Chandok asked Christian Horner about it. And he was like, "No, we could we could do it." logistically because we're only racing 200 Ks up the road yeah. at Zanfort and Zanfort posted Monday night, our time, social media of the trucks all rolling in with all the hospitality stuff. So they're already there and, and building. Yeah. Look, I, the, the officials are clearly the biggest drama they've got hundred percent, but um, the, the fact that at the moment they haven't announced any refunding of fans tickets and things like that. But I mean, if I paid, if I paid what, how much would a grandstand ticket oh, be? Well, AGP, AGP on a Sunday is 300 bucks. So yeah, 150, 200 pound easy. If, if I paid that to Euro. go to Melbourne and didn't get a Grand Prix, I'd probably want my money back. Uh, and this is what I was going to say. I was going to say, I hope that they didn't run their two laps that they had to award points and everything in the, in the way of saying we have had a race, no refunds. But if that not, happened, well, no, they that did that. Be, uh, I don't think they did that for tickets. I think they did that for TV. But you know, you go back to the Australian Grand Prix last year, when there was there was no announcement because everyone was trying to wash their hands of it and not pay the sanction mm. fees. Like they were waiting for the other side to pull the pin on it. Exceptional circumstances, that though. And, and this is exceptional circumstances yeah. too, because it's happened once in. Well, I mean, Malaysia '09, there was they got through nearly half a race before they canned it. Yeah, that. But then was you more, go back to Adelaide '90, Adelaide '91, mm. when you know you got. 10 laps in or whatever it was. So it's a once in 30 year deal. Like it's I don't, not I don't something know the that stats. normally happens. I don't know the stats, but would Spa be the track most rained on than any other Formula One track during a race? No, I think Malaysia was. Malaysia, is it? Back in the day, because yeah, they always okay. ran it in the wet season. Yeah. And Bernie had timed okay. the race to start at the when the yeah. four o'clock rain shower comes in, which was genius. But um yeah, I, I I feel for Spa as well because they've had a shocking run. Like their CEO was murdered in a murder suicide. That horrible, and then they have to deal with this. Just, I mean, you, we've said it before on the show this year. At no point would you want to be a race promoter right now. No, and dealing with that on the weekend and everything they've been through. Oof, wowie, that's hard work. And and this is the other problem is that the the Wallonia government area that that spa is in pays formula one for the race. So they probably spend 30 million dollars a year to get the race. They rely on the only income the track makes is from ticket sales. Um, so F1 rocks up, washes their hand of it and disappears. Um, and the promoters left <laughs> with 70,000 angry Belgians 
yeah. getting at them. So that's um, and Formula One goes to the Netherlands this weekend, where they'll have a full house, and it'll be it'll be wonderful. So and not, to, and not to forget the Dutch that also probably came over for the race as well. well that, that too, but they'd be happy though. They that well, yeah, because Max won, <laughs> yes, <laughs> won in inverted yeah. commas. It wasn't a good look. It, it, it's. I think it'll end up having the same impact on the sport as as Indy and the six car race at Indy will, and that that implemented massive change where people worked out that sometimes you've got to be better than what the regulations say. So if they just went and wobbled around behind the safety car for half an hour, an hour, two hours, whatever, is that better? Well, at least you'd feel like they'd made some attempt to run the cars to clear the standing water or whatever it might have been. I, I would, yeah. If they'd run the cars around under safety car for an hour. How good was that race in the Gold Coast so that um, well, Mario yeah. Dominguez won? Yeah, that too. No, it was absolute rubbish. Oh, Correct. If you remember. Yeah. I, I, look, I've said it before rubbish. and I'll say it again. If you've got to start a race under safety car, then it's unsafe to start the race. No. No, I disagree with that, Shebex, because yeah. the conditions the conditions aren't going to get better when the cars are sitting in pit lane. Yep. Like the, the wet weather Formula One tyre is extremely efficient at moving an enormous amount of water from where it was to different places away from where the tyre is. But so it's, it's, it's more just having that spacing into the first turn. Yeah. If you're single file behind a safety car. Yeah. yeah. It's so a, much better. A lot less, mm. you know, yeah. jumbled up when you get to that turn one. Yeah. So if they... And, and yes, it was persistently raining, but if they'd run the cars around for half an hour, whatever, the clock was ticking down. It wasn't like they were going to run the things out of fuel. They're all fueled up to do 300 Ks anyway. Yeah. Um, run them around for half an hour. If at that point the track hadn't have got better, you'll probably go, well, it's not going to get better than this. So maybe then you call it, but at least you try. Mm. The, the, the two lap thing just strikes me as being a cop and, out. And as a cop out and a bit of a cynical attempt to, have it classified a race at least at least put some effort in and i think that's why people are are more upset is because no one was going to shunt running under well perez cl- crashed on the bloody warm-up lap so maybe they were going to shunt under safety car but either way at least you have an attempt at getting a race in well, and getting some meaningful distance in yeah uh, hey thirty-eight thousand people still watching at 1am yeah exactly right oh, it was huge maniacs yeah yeah, yeah guilty yeah, <laughs> I'm a sucker, uh, mate. I'm a sucker for a rain delay. Well, yeah. my, my kid, my kid, woke me up at four a.m. and I'm like, yeah. "Hang on, this is just finished. What's going on?" <laughs> Caught to one for me. It was uh, Melbourne time, so it was just after you. If yeah, you, no, yeah. I, I, I got just three before to you, the, and I just yeah, I thought, no, this isn't going to happen. I got three to this the, when they red flagged the second time. Um, and it looked like it was going to be no. I gave up on life. The old Porsche race had a bit happen about it too, didn't it? Yeah. Jackson Evans got utterly screwed, didn't he? Yeah. Shame. How you doing? Nice win there in the Formula Threes. He drive a bit. Yeah. Mm. Isn't that a a bit on in that race? Yeah. Mm. Had a lot on. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Nice boys. Jack. Jack doing. That's uh, that's exciting. That's really exciting. Wouldn't it can be you imagine? Can, World you, Championship? can you imagine if we end up with a Doohan representing Australia in Formula One? Oh, well, like, that's it. But then, but then he goes on to win a World Championship, and Dad wins one, and he oh, wins mate, one. Be well, it'd just be extraordinary. What a story! Very cool. Hmm. Very. Anything cool. else you want to talk about? Uh, no. Oh, ben, pretty much the major things, weren't they? The Bend Classic is on this weekend. Uh, if you're in uh, free Australia, what uh, Formula uh, One cars are we going to see there, Richard? 
Uh, not quite as many as last year, but we will see the debut of uh, an ex Gincalo Fisichella Benetton B198. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, 198. 1998 car that qualified third for the Austrian Grand Prix that season in the hands of Fisichella. Um, I saw it last night at, uh, as we record, it's Tuesday night. I saw it Monday night down at Team BRM. Um, it is currently split in half because they're putting a new input shaft in it. Um, because old Formula One cars are fragile and they break things. Um, but it's a really, really tri- tricky so piece a, of kit. A really user-friendly piece, isn't it? Oh, they're yeah, they're they're right on the cusp of being unbreakable. <laughs> but it's got um, it's got the Judd four-liter Judd uh, V10 that Judd produced, and I love that there's a company that does this. Judd produce an engine for customer Formula One cars. So there, there is a business case in this world for a company to produce engines for old Formula One cars. Isn't that just awesome? <laughs> that is awesome. Isn't that great? So, Shebeki, you go and buy yourself a, you know, one of Paul Stoddart's Minardis. You could ring up John Judd and say, I'd like an engine, please. And he'll go, certainly, we have one for you right here. I'll, I'll go and buy that uh, wide-body McLaren from 95. That they the Nigel Nige. Mansell car? Yeah. yeah I'll yeah, need I'd, the wide-body one. I'd need that. I tried. I could just get in the Benetton, but... Um, didn't can't, quite can't get I'm, thinking, I'm, thinking yeah. more, I'm thinking more Alan Jones than Nigel Mansell. Oh, AJ was slimmer in 1980. He won the world yeah. championship. Mm. Anyway, uh, hello to Alan, if you're listening. Hello, Alan. Um, exactly. Good bloke. Uh, gentlemen, always a pleasure. Look forward to doing it next week. Yep. We'll uh, have another top five, I think, because yep. there's bugger all else going on in the world. <laughs> no, no, exactly. All quiet. Uh, catch you later, Mark. See you soon. And see you again right here on The Grid.